Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, looks like today, heads will roll as we look at a brief history of the guillotine. So here we go. So when one thinks of the guillotine, the French Revolution immediately comes to mind. And of course, it was used extensively during that time, especially during the Reign of Terror. But the idea of using an execution machine to chop off someone's head goes far back into history. But let's kind of focus on Europe. In England, beheadings were a fairly common form of execution. And for this story, what interests us is the town of Halifax. Their first recorded execution by beheading took place in 1286, carried out by either a sword or axe. Records are kind of sparse until 1538 when parish registers began being kept. From that point until 1650, when the last executions took place, Halifax saw 56 men and women decapitated, and it's thought that probably over 100 beheadings happened since 1286. So how does this fit into our story? Well, sometime in the 1500s, a machine designed to decapitate people was erected in Halifax. It became known as the Halifax gibbet. It was a device that seems to have been unique in England and was used for many of the executions on record from that point onward. It looked similar to the guillotine we've all seen in the movies. It had two grooved uprights, perhaps 14 or 15 feet tall. Between them was a heavy wood block that ran in the grooves, upon which an axe head was affixed. A rope and pulley allowed this blade assembly to be raised the full height of the uprights, and releasing the rope would allow the blade to fall with great force. The condemned criminal would be laid down with their neck across the area where the blade would fall. Its last use was on April 30, 1650, when two criminals were executed on the same day. Similar devices are also seen in other sources. A 1532 edition of one of Petrarch's works has a woodcut illustration in which an execution is being carried out on a machine very similar to the Halifax gibbet. Hollinshed's Chronicles, published in 1577, also has a woodcut illustration depicting the execution of Mercad Bala in Ireland in 1307. Again, a similar machine appears, suggesting that something of the sort was used in Ireland at, at that time. More extensive information exists concerning a device known as the Scottish Maiden. Again, it looks very much like the guillotine we all know and love, and the story of its creation deserves a moment of our time. It seems that in 1563, the sword used for executions in Edinburgh was worn out. An execution set to take place in February of that year required that civic funds be spent to rent a suitable sword for the beheading. Rent a sword. Now <laughs> there's a business idea. <laughs> but anyway, the provost and magistrates of Edinburgh decided that an execution machine should be built, rather than shelling out for a new sword. 
The Scottish Maiden was constructed in 1564 by carpenters Adam and Patrick Shang and George Todd. Andrew Gotterson provided the weighted blade. The cost of the entire device was two pounds. Quite a bargain for something that was used from 1565 well into the 1600s. So my point is that decapitation machines existed well before the guillotine of the French Revolution. But it would be the French who perfected and spread its use. Prior to the Revolution, during the old regime, there were a variety of ways capital punishment was carried out in France. Hanging was probably the most common, but remember, this was way before the long drop method that broke a person's neck instantly, meaning that the condemned might hang for 10 or 20 minutes before finally suffocating. On top of hanging, burning was the punishment for bestiality, heresy, sodomy, witchcraft, and, ironically, arson. Breaking on the wheel was used for brigands and murderers, while counterfeiters faced death by being boiled alive. Kind of like lobsters, I guess. Those guilty of high treason, patricide, or regicide were dismembered. Maybe after death, and eh, maybe not. Beheading was used during France's old regime, but it was reserved only for the privileged nobles. Let's face it, compared to the other forms of execution I've just mentioned, beheading is a much quicker and less painful way to go. When the French Revolution began, the newly created National Assembly kicked around the idea of capital punishment. Should it be continued? Many in the Assembly argued that such a practice had no place in an enlightened society. As a matter of fact, one of the most vocal supporters for ending capital punishment was a young lawyer named Maximilien Robespierre. <laughs> How ironic. Ultimately, the Assembly decided executions would continue. With that decision made, the debate turned to exactly how execution should be carried out. On October 10, 1789, Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine suggested a decapitation machine be used for all executions, supposedly telling the assembly, With my machine, I strike off your head in the twinkling of an eye, and you won't feel a thing. Of course, Guillotine had no plan for a specific machine in mind, and it was rather difficult for the assembly to take him seriously. And as the revolution gathered steam, the question of what form execution should take was set aside due to more pressing matters. In October 1791, the National Assembly came back to the question of methods of capital punishment and passed a law that standardized all executions and prohibited any means other than decapitation. This was consistent with the revolutionary ideal that all people should be treated equally, and that the purpose of capital punishment was to end life, not cause torture and suffering. With this decision made, France's royal executioner, Charles-Henri Sanson, delivered an insightful argument to the assembly. He, as all French executioners, owned and maintained all his own equipment. These tools of the trade were relatively lightweight, and wore out under heavy usage. I mean, after all, you can only resharpen a sword blade so many times before you need to replace it completely. 
with the revolution having the potential for increased executions, Sanson argued that the cost for the executioner to repair or replace his tools would become an unreasonable financial burden. Furthermore, he pointed out that the physical exertion of having to perform multiple executions in a single day might be too tiring for the executioner. The severing of a human head with a single, swift sword stroke took considerable energy and skill. A fatigued executioner would be far more prone to mistakes and botched beheadings. To remedy this, Sanson reminded the assembly of the idea Guillotine had had. Why not use a beheading machine? The assembly tasked Dr. Antoine Louis, physician to the king and secretary of the French Academy of Surgery, with designing such a device. Louis worked with Tobias Schmidt, a German engineer and harpsichord maker, to construct a prototype. What the men built was the machine that we've all seen in the movies. The only difference was that the blade on this device was rounded like a large axe. On April 11, 1792, the prototype guillotine was set up and tested for the first time. Sanson was on hand along with Louis and Schmidt. Bundles of straw about the thickness of a man's neck were the first things to be sliced. After this proved to be successful, the men moved on to using the bodies of sheep and finally a small calf. The men were quite pleased with the machine's performance, and Sanson suggested they get a hold of some human corpses for their next test. Six days later, on April 17th, the guillotine was set up at Bicetre Hospital, where Dr. Louis had arranged for three fresh corpses to be made available. With a handful of government officials from the assembly watching, Sanson worked the machine and decapitated all three bodies. Again, a success though the men weren't completely pleased. While the guillotine worked, they felt it didn't cut as cleanly as it should. On top of this, the test corpses were all old and frail men. Louis, Schmidt, and Sensong kicked around some ideas for how to improve the guillotine's performance. They finally settled on changing out the curved blade for one that was angled so it would be able to better slice. And here is where one of those legendary historical anecdotes comes up. Who actually suggested changing the blade? Many people assume it was one of the three men, but in his memoirs, Sansong claims that King Louis XVI was the one who actually gave them the idea for an angled blade. Did he? Yeah, who knows? The king was an amateur locksmith and enjoyed mechanical things. He had taken an interest in and had been following the progress of the development of the guillotine, though he certainly was not present for any of its tests. So I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, with a new angled blade, the guillotine was again tested on April 21st. This time, the hospital provided the corpses of three young, well-built men who had all died in accidents. The tests on these bodies were a resounding success, and the guillotine was declared ready for its public debut. On April 25, 1792, a curious crowd gathered in Paris to witness the execution of Nicolas Pelletier, a notorious highwayman. Sanson operated the guillotine, and a flawless execution ensued. The crowd, by the way, was rather disappointed. 
Their attitude was like, what, that's it? The execution was that quick and efficient. The almost 90-pound blade assembly fell in 170th of a second. That is literally in the blink of an eye. And although a decapitation does make a hell of a mess, it seems the crowd wanted more. Unfortunately, as the revolution went on, they'd get more, and then some. Now before I go on, let's clear up the name of this device. As it first began to be used, it was known as the Louisette, after Dr. Louis. Soon, though, it started to be called the Guillotine, after Dr. Guillotine, the man who had originally suggested it. Of course, it had many nicknames as well, with some of the more popular ones being the National Razor, because it gave such a close shave, the Widow, the Widowmaker, and Madame Guillotine. Oh, and before I forget, no, Dr. Guillotine was not executed by the guillotine. He actually lived through the revolution and died of old age years later. The period of the French Revolution, from June of 1793 to July of 1794, is known as the Reign of Terror. It was during this time that the guillotine worked overtime. During this span, 300,000 enemies of the revolution were arrested. Of those, perhaps 10,000 died in prison, and somewhere around 17,000 were executed across France. Understand, guillotines existed in other cities, and these were used like crazy. In Paris, some 2,600 people were executed during the terror, including the king, Marie Antoinette, and later on, even some revolutionary leaders who dared question the increasingly deranged Robespierre. And if you remember your French history, the terror would ultimately end with Robespierre's demise on the National Razor. During the terror, public executions were a popular source of entertainment and drew great crowds. Vendors sold programs listing those to be executed, and various trinkets were also sold such as guillotine-shaped earrings, charms, and working toy guillotines that could behead a doll. So yeah, good wholesome family fun, as the heads rolled and the scaffold dripped with blood. So with the end of the reign of terror, is that the end of our story? No, what many people seem to forget is that the guillotine would continue to be used in France as their only form of capital punishment, until they abolished the practice. Actually, for sentences passed by military courts, a firing squad would be used, but that was only for the military. So when did France do away with the guillotine? Well, the last public execution to use it took place on June 17, 1939. Eugene Weidman, convicted of six murders, was beheaded on the sidewalk outside the prison Saint-Pierre in Versailles. Executions in France were supposed to take place at sunrise, but a huge crowd of people had gathered hours earlier for a chance to be in the front row to see the blade fall. Authorities, having to deal with this, delayed the assembly of the guillotine and further preparations. This gave reporters time to bring in photographers and even a movie camera to capture the event even though pictures were supposed to be forbidden. 
When Weedman was brought out of the prison doors, the crowd went wild with howling and shrieking. After the blade fell, many people rushed forward to dip handkerchiefs into the blood pooling on the sidewalk as a macabre souvenir. The police had to push the crowd back and quickly remove the body, disassemble the guillotine, and wash the pavement. In response to the crowd's behavior, French President Albert Lebrun ordered that all further executions were to be limited to a private setting in a prison courtyard. Here's a fun fact about that strange day. One of the witnesses was a 17-year-old British lad by the name of Christopher Lee. Yes, the acclaimed actor who would go on to star in a host of Hammer horror films in the 1950s and 60s, as well as the Star Wars prequels and Lord of the Rings franchise in later years. He happened to be on holiday and was able to attend with a friend of his family who was a journalist covering the event. And speaking of Star Wars, France's final use of the guillotine came the very same year Star Wars was lighting up movie screens around the world, September 10, 1977, when torturer and murderer Hamida Jandobi was executed in Marseille. France abolished the death penalty in 1981, so that also happened to be the last execution to ever be carried out by a national government using the guillotine. With what I just said, I seem to imply that perhaps other countries used it as well. They did indeed. It was particularly popular in the German states, starting in the early 1800s, and continuing through the German Empire, Weimar Republic, and Nazi regime. The Nazis used it between 1933 and 1945 for over 16,000 executions. Most of these were carried out by Johann Reichardt. He had been executioner for the Weimar Republic starting in 1924, and the Nazis kept him in the same position during their reign. When the Nazis fell, you'd think old Johann would be out of a job, but don't worry about him. He found a new employer. Namely, the United States Army. They employed him, and he helped hang 156 Nazi war criminals at Landsberg. So yeah, he knew how to do hangings as well. Some sources say he also consulted with American Master Sergeant John C. Woods, who was the executioner at Nuremberg, but other sources say he didn't. By the way, the guillotine on display in the Bavarian National Museum is the one he used for many of the executions that took place during the first half of the 1940s. After the war, West Germany continued to use the guillotine until 1949, and the East Germans kept it until 1966. Other countries to use it were Belgium in the 1800s, Switzerland up to 1940, Greece up to 1913, and Sweden, who only used it once in 1910. It was also employed in many of France's colonies. So now we come to the bizarre question that gets brought up any time the guillotine is discussed. Does the severed head have any consciousness or awareness for a brief period of time after decapitation? There's certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence from witnesses to executions, but that's hardly scientific proof. 
probably the most scientific experiment to try to test this idea was conducted on June 28, 1905. A man named Henri Lenguil was to be executed. A Dr. Bureau made arrangements with him and got his permission to examine his head immediately after the execution. In a medical journal, the doctor wrote, The head fell on the severed surface of the neck, and I did not therefore have to take it up in my hands. Here then is what I was able to note immediately after the decapitation. The eyelids and lips of the guillotined man worked in irregularly rhythmic contractions for about five or six seconds. I waited for several seconds. The spasmodic movement ceased. The face relaxed. The lids half-closed on the eyeballs, leaving only the white visible. It was then that I called in a strong, sharp voice, Lengil. I saw the eyelids slowly lift up, without any spasmodic contractions. Next, Lengil's eyes very definitely fixed themselves on mine, and the pupils focused themselves. I was not then dealing with the sort of vague, dull look without any expression that can be observed any day in dying people to whom one speaks. I was dealing with undeniably living eyes, which were looking at me. The doctor said he called out for a second time, and again Lingle's eyes fixed on his. He added, The eyelids lifted, and undeniably living eyes fixed themselves on mine, with perhaps even more penetration than the first time. The doctor then called out a third time, but by this time Lingill was most certainly dead and did not respond. The whole thing had lasted 25 or 30 seconds. Wow, man, that's freaky. Does it prove anything? Probably not. And since we really can't ask anyone who's been beheaded if it's true, we'll probably never know. So that's the story of the guillotine. A machine made solely for carrying out executions. It's just one of many machines man has used throughout history to carry out that ultimate punishment. But talking about other methods of execution, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again, hopefully next week.